Hi! Hey! Welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is based on one particular idea. It began for me when a Protestant pastor asked me the question, what's more important, the Bible or tradition? That led me on a deep dive into the history of Christianity, the history of the Bible, my, my faith, where it came from, how it developed, how it grew, what happened in the early church, the, the Reformation before, beyond, and in between. And it was in that journey that I encountered for the very first time the Catholic Church in its own words, actual Catholic theologians and thinkers and writers, and realized that what I thought I knew what Catholics believed was based in large part on misinformation and more often than not on simple misunderstandings. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that gap, the gap between what do you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. Each week I have a real Catholic conversation with a real Catholic thinker from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this week I am joined by the legendary Gary Machuda to talk about how the Catholic Church proves the truth of the Bible. It's a fantastic way of looking at really the veracity of the scriptures. Did Jesus come? What did he teach? How do we know what he taught? How do we know that what we have, the contents of what he taught in our Bibles, that it's all in there, that it's real, that it's true? All these kind of amazing questions through the lens of a a Catholic church, a community of believers in the early church down through time, passed on through the apostles, through the bishops and their successors down through today. It's it's an amazing way of looking at this question, and Gary does these amazing things like this with questions like this, so you shouldn't be surprised, but it's absolutely beautiful and informative and deep and really new and refreshing way of looking at these kinds of questions and using the the beauty and historicity of our Catholic faith just to lend that little bit more, or I guess a lot bit more, veracity to the claims of the Bible. Here's why I know the Bible is true, backed up by the reality of the church. And importantly, in this interview, we talk for a little bit about the fact that all along, it was not just the, the text passed down through time that we now have in our hands to, to read, but also in tandem, the, the meaning of that text. Now, that's also very important for really underscoring the importance, the reality, the necessity of the Catholic Church. It's, it's a fantastic conversation, guys. I think you will love it. This conversation and others are brought to you by our patrons at patreon.com slash cordialcatholic and our one-time sponsors at paypal.me slash cordialcatholic. You guys help to keep this show going and growing week after week. It's not my full-time job, so your support of the show makes it possible to do this week after week, to carve up the time and not to quit doing this and get a real job uh, of some other kind. So thank you for your support in making this possible to begin with. And I have one brand new new patron. Thank you, Byron, for your support of the show, your generous support of the show. You helped to keep this going and growing, so thank you, Byron, for becoming a new patron of the show. And those who are supporting us week after week, thank you as well. And now, without any further ado, my conversation with Gary Machuda on how the Catholic Church proves the truth of the Bible. Please listen and enjoy. Hey, 
Hey friends, welcome back to the show. Thanks for watching. Thank you for listening. If you are watching on YouTube, make sure you subscribe to this channel, uh, follow it, uh, hit the bell so you're notified when all the videos come out each and every week. And please do interact in the comments. Let us know what you think of this episode, questions, comments, feedback, the weird things you guys do on YouTube, but please be nice, uh, play nice out there. And thanks for watching. If you are listening on a podcast, thank you. Please make sure you follow the show wherever you find it. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts or on Spotify, please just press pause in just a moment and please leave a rating or a review if you can. Those help push the podcast out to new listeners who can hear conversations like this one this week, and we're in for a fantastic one. My friends, I am joined by a return guest to the show. It's been a while, Gary, but he's back again, Gary Machuda. He is the author of a number of fantastic books, including Revolt Against Reality, Fighting the Enemies of Sanity and Truth from the Serpents to the State, Hostile Witnesses, How the Enemies of the Church Prove Christianity, The Case for the Deuterocanon, Arguments and Evidence, and, of course, Why Catholic Bibles Are Bigger. He is the host of Hands-On Apologetics on Virgin Most Powerful Radio, a fantastic radio show out each and every day, and the author for our purposes here today, a brand new book from St. Paul Center from Emmaus Road uh, Publishing, The Gospel Truth, How We Can Know What Christ Taught. Gary, I am thrilled to have you back. Thanks for being here. (laughs) Welcome and hello. (laughs) Yeah, hey, it's great to be back. And uh, wow, what an intro. I actually feel like uh, I accomplished something. (laughs) (laughs) You have, you have. I mean, Gary, if nothing else, why Catholic Bibles are bigger, Gary? You could have written that book and just sat in your laurels, I think, for the rest of your life and been the guy who wrote that book, because that book is is the book, honestly, for, for so many of us converts like myself, Gary, that's the book that we go, Gary, what can you just open our eyes to this thing that like so many people are, are, are their minds are blown by so if nothing else gary that accomplishment you could have just done and sat and sat back and we would have been in awe of you never mind everything you've done since then gary so happy to have you it, it's been a, a, a minute i'm looking back at the archives here episode 86 and we're on 200 and i think 14 now is this one so it's been a while gary uh i apologize to you and the listeners because we've been deprived of gary Majuna, but you're back and we're so thrilled and gary this is a fantastic uh, new book i think it if i can be if i can inflate your head a bit more before we we get into it gary this is the kind of thing that I, that honestly if i think of gary machuda i think of this is the kind of thing that you do you do best it's this this book is is deep research it's it's thinking in a way about the the question of of the bible and of christ and who he was and who wrote about who he was and what happened in in this I don't know how to describe it the best, but there's this really intense research-based deep thinking, asking questions that I don't think maybe a lot of people or researchers or, or academics are necessarily asking, presenting it in a new way. I mean, you you do this awesome, fresh work, Gary, that I think is so beneficial that then people will use and read and carry forward into how they present the gospel and defend Jesus and, and the church and these things. So kudos on another another fantastic book, Gary. This is awesome, and maybe you could maybe you could tell us uh, to begin with, kind of the genesis of this idea. Like, where did this idea come from for you? Do you just sit down there in that in that in that studio and just research all day long? What are you? What yeah, are, it seems like it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, my books are usually it, it's uh, my books usually are the end result of me 
trying to remember all sorts of stuff that I've discovered. And it just becomes too much. So I figure, okay, I'm going to organize. I'm going to put it in print. And that way, if I ever need to access it, I have a book I could open up and, and get. So it's like my books generally are, yeah, at least, I think the shortest ones, maybe four years of research. And the longest one's probably 10 or maybe even more. This one, this one I've been you know, putting this stuff in my back pocket over and over again. And then um, I thought, you know what, it's time, it's time to use this approach. Cause I think there's, there's some very good books out there. Uh, a lot of them are Protestant evangelical books that vindicate the text of scripture, but there's a whole bunch of questions they don't ask. And I think, you know, me as a Catholic, uh, I can, uh, you know, take what they do and run with it and show how, you know, uh, we could, we could have a really, really strong case for how we can know what Jesus actually taught. Yeah, yeah, and and I I, I love it. I love the idea that uh, this is your, these are your research notes gathered for you to remember them, and then just shared with everybody else so we can, so we can enjoy the fruits of your labor. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's wonderful. It reminds me of something that you know there there are certain people like yourself. I think of Eric Ibarra, another one that I think of. These guys that. You guys do the the hard hard work of rigorous research, uh, citation, and and study and work, and we all just benefit. We just ride in your coattails and benefit <laughs> from all your hard work. So, I, I love it, and I love this approach. So, so this is this book is a defense kind of of how we know Christ came, Christ lived. The the Bible is true from a but adding a Catholic you know the, the weight of uh, of what the Catholic Church has uh, adding on to uh, an evangelical perspective. Is that, uh, that's a bad summary, actually. I think. Yeah, I was no, going to say no, like, good, but it's not. That's, it. I can't. Yeah. Yeah, that's essentially it. It's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, there's more to the story. If you really take the idea that Jesus established a community that's structured, that persists throughout history, uh, that strength alone, you can draw all sorts of interesting uh, arguments and uh, that could solve a lot of problems uh, with the evangelical tr- uh, treatment of vindicating the gospels tend to be to my ear kind of thin and it leaves open some really good questions by atheists like uh, okay uh, let's say the text i have in front of me is even if you could prove it's identical to the original how do you know that that text belongs in the bible yeah. and how do you know what the proper interpretation of that text is and, uh, and how do you know that the, the text I have, the people who wrote it, uh, didn't lie or fabricate or exaggerate? You know, those are really basic questions. But if you don't take the early church seriously yeah, and actually yeah, yeah, see yeah. it as a believing community, it's like extremely hard to answer that in a satisfying way. Yeah. So I love that. So in a sense, this idea as a Protestant, right, that the Bible kind of was was put together and and passed on, but there's no there's no exact kind of hand to hand, no no links in that chain, right? Especially if you yeah. have the narrative that the church fell into apostasy, well, that then begins to cause problems for your narrative of well, then how do you know the Bible wasn't wasn't corrupted or wasn't uh, fabricated in certain ways? What I think you're saying is then actually, as a Catholic, we have this stronger argument because we believe the church in its authority, first of all canonize the Bible and then pass it on. And we have those linkages all the way through. There was no, yeah. no, no dark ages, no time the church fell into apostasy and things could have been corrupted or, or, or damaged or, or, or added on. Is that, is that right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's demonstrable too. I mean, there is a way or a method that you can use uh, to determine certain things, you know? So one of the big themes that go out through my book, uh, The Gospel Truth, is verification. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, I believe the Gospels were written in such a way that it would be uh, deliberately made to pass on information accurately. And I also believe that uh, that the early Christians verified what was written. And I give you some evidence for that. And then once you step a generation later, you know, how can we verify that we have the correct interpretation or meaning of it? How can we verify whether or not uh, they told the truth? How can we verify which books belong in Scripture and which ones don't? All of them are uh, basically follow the same methodology, and that methodology is something that you know is well known by Catholics and Orthodox. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. That's a wonderful approach, Gary. Very again, <laughs> this is the thing. Very refreshing. I love how you uh, you tackle these things from really a, a unique perspective. I love that, Gary. So let's maybe begin with this question. Jesus came, that's not a question. Jesus came, he, he lived, he taught, he died, rose from the dead. He didn't say, write a book, pass it on to my followers. So I guess the first question, as somebody who says, how do we know this is true? I mean, the first question might be, well, Jesus, there's no evidence that Jesus said, write this down and pass this on. So how do we know that's, that this is what Jesus did that was passed on. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, that, that makes perfect sense. And usually non-believers will focus on the fact that there, there is a gap where th- there or things were transmitted orally and then eventually they were written down. And how do you know during that gap, like legends didn't yeah, slip yeah. in or embellishments or, you know, things like that. And uh, well, in my book, what I basically do, here's a tiny spoiler alert is, you know, when God decides to to take on our humanity and disclose himself to us, he ties into Jewish culture. Of all the cultures in the world, he picks the Jewish culture that already had a mechanism for passing on teaching accurately from a rabbi to the disciple. And so at the beginning of my book, what I do is I, I look at what do we know about this method of transmission, then I look at the Gospels to see, did Jesus tap in? Is there evidence in the Gospels that he's using this methodology? And he does. And not only that, but he even supersedes it. And so uh, that right there tells you, okay, there's a very good probability that these writings are the fruit of the disciples who learned this from Jesus. And then I started looking at the gospel text themselves, and I looked for signs in the text of a kind of formatting so that uh, Jesus, for example, he, he presents himself or his words, his discourses, even the places that he has the discourses are all pre-made so that it could be remembered for a long period of time. There's lots of memory devices in work. And, you know, for us, you know, before I, I've, I actually kind of found this out, and this is something well known in the scholarship, you know, you read the Bible and you go, well, that's just Bible ease. Yeah, People just yeah. talk <laughs> like that back then, you know, but it, it actually, no, uh, many of the things that you, you think is just biblical way of saying stuff is actually formatting. It's mnemonic formatting to help people memorize certain things like uh, we use the same thing today. You know, if I said Mary had a little lamb, 
I think pretty much everybody could finish it, right? <laughs> and the reason for that is because it's in the, uh, there's a rhyme and a rhythm yeah, to yeah, yeah. that particular poem. And the same thing's true in the New Testament. There's a rhyme and a rhythm that you see throughout the Gospels. And then you have, uh, if, uh, let, you know, okay, stop me if I'm going, I get excited about this. So I'm going to go deep into the, let me just share one of the coolest things. Okay, the earliest texts we have are in Greek. But the weird thing is, the Greek text at times speaks Aramaic, okay? It, it speaks Aramaic. And if you know Aramaic or Hebrew and you're reading the Greek text, you'll say, whoa, hold on, that's, that sounds more Hebrew than, you know, than Greek. And what I found is that at times we can spot this. It's really difficult to do. But we can spot that these memory devices are also on the level of a Hebrew or Aramaic original that was then translated into Greek. Okay. Are you following me on yeah, that one? Yeah, yeah. This and great. let me show you the coolest thing that I found. Okay. And it has to do with the Benedictus. Okay. So we're talking Luke uh, 1, yeah, 70 through 75, right? And Catholics are familiar with praying the Benedictus. Of course, this is what Zachariah's song, right? And there's a couple of lines in the song that just blew me away when I saw this. Uh, I, I learned this through uh, a French scholar. Um, the lines are, I'll just give you this. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, uh, the oath in which he swore to our father Abraham. Okay, just those three lines. What's really cool is... There are three words in this, in those lines to show mercy. Okay. The Hebrew for that is, um, let me make sure I get this. Hanan. Okay. That means to show mercy. That's the same root, Hebrew root for the name John, Yohanan. Okay. The, um, then there's the, to remember is Zakar in Hebrew, which is the root for the name Zachariah. Zechariah, okay? And then to remember is, or swear an oath is Shabbat, excuse me, to, to swear an oath is a Shabbat, which is the root for Elizabeth, Eli Shabbat, okay? So you hear in these three lines, you have the three names of John, Zechariah, and Elizabeth, but it's in the Hebrew, it's buried underneath the Greek. So it's like, wow, so there, there must be like, uh, original layer of Hebrew or Aramaic <laughs> that was a memory device, yeah, yeah. but then it's hidden by the Greek, right? So what's going on? You know, if this was a fabrication, it should be out in plain day, yeah, right? Yeah. But instead it's hidden. And if you didn't know Hebrew, you wouldn't know it was there. So it's like uh, what I pose in my book, and I give you tons and tons yeah. of instances yeah. like that, is if this was a fabrication, it is so over-engineered, <laughs> You know, it's like no one would make a, a fake story with all these intricacies. It just smacks of being authentic. <laughs> that's a, that's amazing. So not only are you finding this beautiful evidence that the the gospels were uh, were, were passed on orally, and there are these devices that 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 make it all pretty obvious that it was it was engineered. It was it was built to be passed on orally. Yeah, I guess until it was written down. Right is the is the idea you're finding in that oral passing down you're finding such 
such devices, such mechanisms to help remember the, the Gospels, that it would be insane to actually have tried to, to fabricate this in, in some way. What if they get in some kind of very complicated operation, right? Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, and why hide it? Yeah. You know, right. I yeah, mean, yeah, a fabrication, yeah. uh, you'd want to kind of show your hand because yeah. that would give it lended credibility. Why bury it under yeah, yeah. another language? And, yeah. and the cool thing is ultimately the source has to be Jesus. Jesus must have gave these discourses and so on in a formatted way. Right. And it's just, it blows your mind, the genius that went into all these different layers of formatting. It's almost as if Jesus is divine. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, I think that's amazing. So not only do we have a book that's miraculous in the nature that it contains miracles, right? It's, it has... Mm-hmm. It has survived for such a long period of time. I mean, the Bible is pretty miraculous in that it gives us a, a picture of such ancient t- times, Old Testament, New Testament. It also contains within the actual writing, the passing on of it, these kind of crazy, miraculous uh, elements that mm-hmm. that point to, I mean, even on a, on a deeper level, a divine author. That's a that's amazing. I mean, I, I'm trying to think of like an analogy of that. Like I don't know, like opening up a, co- a computer. And finding, you know, uh, uh, maybe like, you know, I don't know, a computer went back in time, right? And some ancients find a computer and open it up and you're, you're seeing layers upon layers of engineering in this. And it, you just keep peeling things back and finding, oh, look at this. And then, oh, there's a, here's a microprocessor. Oh, here's even smaller like parts of this and smaller parts of this. It just seems like that all, yeah, points back to some kind of amazing creator. And I yeah. love that it's layers of evidence like that. That's really yeah. interesting, Gary. I love this. Yeah, it's stuff. not one or two. It's, it's like there's tons of it. And you just, you have to sit back and say, okay, it's not a fabrication. Okay. So, but then the question is, that, can you be verified? And you mentioned miracles. And uh, the, the method I use when I treat that in the book is miracle claims. I take it like trying to cash a check. Okay. Um, if you if you try to catch a small check at your bank or your credit union or whatever uh, for five, 10, 15 bucks, they'll just run it through the machine. You get money. No problem. Right. But if you're trying to cash a check, that's like 10,000, 100,000 million. Uh, you're going to have to come inside, get your ID. You're going to have to get fingerprinted. Probably they're going to call the other bank. They're going to verify it. Right. Yeah, because yeah. the risk that the if this check bounces, right the the banks out of you know hundred thousand million dollars right they're going to verify it and uh, so what I do is I look at the gospels and they write some really big checks you know in terms of what <laughs> yeah. Jesus said and yeah. did and so it's like did the earliest Christians the first readers of these documents first did they have an incentive to verify yeah absolutely does the gospels give enough information that they could verify it yeah they do. And uh, I'll, give, I'll give you another uh, spoiler alert. One of my favorites is in the Bread of Life discourse in John okay, 6, that's, this is which good. is very familiar, right? Yeah. But I bet there's a verse there that never made sense if you're reading it closely, okay? Right after Jesus multiple times says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, and unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life within you, right? Right at the end of that, suddenly the narrator jumps in. It's really weird. It's like Jesus gives this discourse, and it's almost like the old-time TV commercial or news breaks or something. We interrupt this program to give you a very important <laughs> message, right? And it's the narrator, and he says, 
these things Jesus said while teaching in the synagogue of Capernaum. Then it's like now back to our regularly scheduled program. And then it just starts <laughs> over again, you know, uh, with the discourse or it continues on. And it's like, why did the narrator feel the need to jump into this, this discourse and say where yeah, exactly yeah. Jesus gave these words? Well, obviously, it's kind of a dare to verify, right? Because people listening to this would think, oh, Jesus would never say something like that, you know, eating flesh and drinking blood. This must be a fabrication. Well, the, the narrator or, or the author obviously felt, yeah. no, I need to give you a little apologetic card. Just go over to Capernaum, ask the people in the synagogue, see if I'm lying, right? <laughs> and so it's like, you know, there's a dare to verify. Yeah, they're, yeah. they're throughout the, the Gospels. They're writing big checks that it would have been incumbent on the first Christians or, or converts to Christianity to check out. And uh, ultimately, um, they did check it out. And there's evidence in the New Testament that, yeah, there, these things were verified by the first, first community. Because after all, whether you're a Gentile or a Jew, you had a lot to lose if you became a Christian. Right. So, of course, you would naturally verify this stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's what Paul does, right, in Corinthians later on. The same idea, like, you know, these guys saw Jesus rise from the dead. Go, there's, there are a lot of, go, go ask them, right? Yeah, go, right. Go cash that check. It's a, a similar thing, kind of on a, I don't know, a grander scale, but just saying, like, look, this is, it, it I love that. It's, 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 yeah, I think, yeah, dare to verify is the right way of putting it because it's almost a dare. Like, go, yeah. like, you know, I, I think the truth of dare, like, you know, go ahead, go, go. Yeah, go ask them. Like, go check that out. Go yeah. walk, walk over there and see. You'll see I was there. And that, for me, Gary, underscores the like the veracity of of the accounts, but also the right. importance of that miracle or that that teaching in John six. Right? Yeah. It's it's as if the the divinely inspired author knew that this was a challenging teaching. I mean, you see mm-hmm. all those followers walk away. Uh, you you got to know that that's going to be something that readers will also be like, oh, this doesn't sit well with me. So he says, okay, well, go go check it out. This really happened. This happened in a real place and a real time. He really said this. I I love that, right? And of course, yeah. if you are working on a fabrication, if you are creating a, a a myth or a legend like this, you aren't going to put your cards on the table and challenge somebody to go and, and verify this like that, right? That Yeah. No, yeah. you'd want it as vague as possible. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. make it as most difficult as possible and hopefully people just wouldn't make the effort to do it. You know, but you find the opposite in the And gospels. you and you see that. You see that with with other not myths and legends, but other stories, you know, I, I'm thinking, for example, of some of the the, the Mormon texts, right? Jesus mm-hmm. Christ of Latter-day Saints Church, uh, the, the Mormon Church have certain texts that if you were to go and try and verify those, you couldn't find those times and those places that are that are listed in there. John's saying, go, go, go check it out, go see. And, and, we know, of course, from the, the, the unbroken line that then the early church kind of fills in for us, that people could go and see this and do this, and that those first hearers and readers of the Gospels took Jesus, say, at his word in John 6, because they believed, you know, based on their firsthand account from people who, who wrote these, and then reading them, this was a real thing in a real place, in, in a real time. They could, they could verify this. 
I think that's, yeah, yeah that's. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, after Jesus heals somebody or brings them back from the dead, you know, they continue to live their life. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they would be around for 30, 40, 50 more years that you could ask them, hey, what happened? You know, do you, what happened to you? I heard that Jesus healed you. They could, you know, that testimony lives on if you take the first community seriously, like it really is yeah, a, right. a community of people. And and even in small towns, sometimes like memories last even longer because not a lot happens in small towns like Nazareth, right? So it's, uh, you know, uh, so any news is big news and it could last for generations. And uh, yeah, so I, I actually, last time, I, I think I traced the last Dare to Verify to Guadratus, who was writing, I think, around 125, 130 AD. So he's still saying, hey, there's some people around that were healed and raised from the dead that are still living. So they probably were pretty old at that point, but that's how far you can verify it, yeah, you know, into the yeah. second Christian century. Yeah. That's amazing that they would have, they would have, and I guess it's a big deal, right? If you're the last guy living that was, that was healed, that experienced, yeah. that experienced the touch of Christ or a healing from the apostles or something. I mean, like that's, that guy's a pretty big deal, right? We think of, we think of saints, we even think of uh, of people now that knew some of the saints or or saints yeah. that knew other saints, right? The, the, the closer you get to uh, the source of a holy person, those people are big deals, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, the people who are touched by some kind of, any kind of miracle, right? It involves the, the canonization of a saint, right? So somebody that, that was involved with a healing miracle, like those, those people are popular people. Like everyone knows who they are. If you, if you follow that particular saint or do any research or look into that, Never mind somebody who lived, who experienced a healing from Jesus or who knew the apostles firsthand. And I love that, like, as you say, here's, I think, where where the early church steps in, right? The Catholic Church begins to, to be the one to verify and to lend importance to the Gospels, to kind of stamp that approval when we see people like, you know, in the early church looking back and saying, hey, this guy knew that he's he's a verification point because he's a real person that lived in a real time and experienced these things i think that you know that's again where i think you mentioned before the catholic church kind of next levels or lends more credibility to the veracity of the gospels and i think that's a great example of where that happens right gary yeah yeah absolutely and not only them but you know they live by neighbors and they have family and you know so there's a whole group a, a community if you will that could persist you know where uh, even if the the person's died there's still people who knew the person they could t recount the stories that he would say or she would say um and all of that lends to uh, ability to verify even beyond the New Testament. Yeah, because there are other sources. I know you have a you have a fantastic book about hostile witnesses, right? And I think it's a fantastic yeah. book. You wrote a number of years back now, Thank you. right? That looks at how witnesses who are or people, writers, uh, recounters, researchers, historians who are actually hostile to Christianity to the Catholic Church. Ten, you know, give us give us a witness for the Catholic Church, right? In their writing or rallying against the Church, actually lend credibility to the existence of some of the, the claims of the Church, and it's the same case for something like the, the Gospels, right? There are and you have a whole chapter on this, right? That that yep. when when people are speaking out against something, that lends credibility to that thing be, being a real thing to speak out against, right? I think that's right. yeah. again 
a brilliant Gary Matsuda turn of, of thinking. <laughs> I love I love the way you, you think sometimes, Gary. That's that's amazing. Can you talk a bit, bit about that? So who are some of these witnesses that actually help us to verify the, the truth of the Gospels? Uh, uh, specifically, what do you, you mean hostile witnesses? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I treat it briefly in this book, but like the hostile witness book is basically uh, you, you have uh, Roman historians, you have uh, pagans that were mocking Jesus. And, and it's, it's not super detailed, but it is these backhanded compliments that, yeah, this, this stuff appears to have taken place. There really was a Jesus who really was crucified. Uh, there was a, a band of followers that still are hanging around. They claim that he rose from the dead. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, basically, I would just refer people to hostile witnesses because there's quite a few, right? Uh, yeah. Quite a few that you could bring to the fore. Yeah, yeah. And and they, I, and really, they're criticizing something that, that existed, yeah, right. right? So that, right. that lends credibility to that, that, that thing. I think that's amazing. Are there any other times when you were reading and researching and you said, this is an amazing instance of, I don't want you to spoil the whole book for us, and readers are going to want to read it, I think, either way, even with your, even with your, your, your teasers here, Gary, because there's a lot of fantastic content in here. But the other places where you're like, wow, this is an amazing thing that the author here has done that challenges readers to, to, to verify these facts. I'm thinking of, you know, you mentioned John 6. You know, I, I thought of in, in the, the epistles, you know, Paul's kind of, go, go, go ask them. Are there other times yeah. when you're like, wow, I didn't see that before, but that's, that's a, that's a challenge. Yeah. Uh, it's loaded with them. Um, you know, there's the uh, chapter 21 of the gospel of John. I mean, John ends twice. It's a strange gospel, right? It ends in, in 20 and then there's like an appendix and it ends again. And at the very end of the 21 appendix, you know, it says uh, these things are true. You know, the, 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 uh, the one who testifies is true. And we know it's true. Well, it's like, okay, well, how do you know it's true? Well, they either was disciples of John or they verified it themselves, you know. And I have a feeling it's probably that group of disciples that uh, uh, were probably the last editors of the Gospel of John. Uh, I think those are that's probably the people who jumped into John six and a couple other places too. And then you have <laughs> Luke's gospel. I mean, Luke says right off the bat in Luke that uh, many have taken to compile a narrative of the events that happened before us. And he says, "I'm I'm going to put it. I'm going after investigating everything accurately anew. I put in this orderly account for you, Theophilus, so that you can know the certainty of what you received." In other words, there's this body of teaching. Luke goes and does the homework. He does the research for that. And essentially, the Gospel of Luke is a verification of what Theophilus was getting in his catechesis. And that's extremely early, right? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I could go on and on. Uh, there's all these dares to verify. And, and the other thing, too, is like whenever I, I, um, I have the case of the, um, the magician in the basement, right? The, a person claims that he healed somebody in their basement and there was just them and the person healed, that'd be really hard to ver verify. Probably it's fraud, right? I mean, how can you tell whether he really healed the person? Well, if there's 20 witnesses in the basement along with them, okay, that could be verified sort of, but it could be staged, right? You could still perpetrate a hoax. Well, let's take the that magician and move him into the public sphere. 
and, and you know, you can just keep doing it. And eventually you get to the point where it's like, oh, that would be really, really hard to fake. Like, for example, he does in multiple locations in front of multiple audiences, including skeptics who have it in their best interest to, to uh, debunk them. Right. Um, and uh, the person's illnesses is well known. You know, there's a history. And that's really, really hard to perpetrate, you know, an unstaged audience with skeptics there. Um, how do you do that? Well, if you, then I go through the New Testament, you see Jesus's miracles, different locations, different audiences, yeah, yeah, yeah. and skeptics, too. They're there and watching it, and they don't debunk it. They kind of try to sweep it under the rug. Yeah. Yeah. And and the authors of the Gospels point out the skeptics often, right? They're often yeah. mentioned the Pharisees, the Sadducees are here, they're watching, the teachers of the love, the leaders are are watching. Like they I guess as you look through the lens of the gospel authors really planting this in reality, in history, really showing you the weight of this, the truth of this. You begin to see all these little things, don't you, Gary? You see these yeah. this, these witnesses who are watching and they're mentioned, oh, they, they were there, right? You can, you, can, you can go and ask them if you want to challenge this account, right? I think that's yeah. really interesting. I think, you know, I, I, as you were talking about John 21, I looked, I looked it up and I'm like, yeah, weird. That, that little turn of, you know, that little verse there, you yeah. see it, you don't see it until you really see it. And it's like, yeah, yeah right, it's, right. Just, it's obviously like a little postscript there. Like this, you know, somebody saying that this is true. We've, we've verified this. Who, wait, wait a minute. Who, who are you? Who has verified this? But again, right. that's like the, that's, yeah, we have, wow, that's really interesting, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, I mean, there's other things too. For example, um, and I've seen this on skeptic channels on YouTube where they make a really good point. And I think this is where evangelical defenses kind of wane is they say, okay, fine. Uh, let's say the text is accurate. Let's say it's, it's generally reliable. How do you know that your interpretation of the text yes, is correct? Yes, because yes. it seems like everybody has different interpretations. They're all contradictory. So even if you, even if we concede all these points, it's kind of worthless, you know? And uh, so what I do is I show we can verify the meaning of a text. And uh, I'm sure you've heard, uh, it goes by a couple of different names, like the telephone game, yeah, where yeah. somebody whispers something in a person's ear and they whisper in another ear. And it goes through a chain of people. Then the last person says what they hear, and it's totally different than the original. And uh, so I totally blow away that whole scenario. That is not the way the scriptures and the meaning of the scriptures was passed on. It wasn't the telephone game. In fact, it's the exact opposite of the telephone game. It, it wasn't some meaningless phrase that was whispered in somebody's ear. It was an incredibly meaningful message that your salvation depends on. And if you accept it, you could be persecuted for that was publicly proclaimed in front of people. You know, it's the opposite. And so, you know, again, if you take that community seriously, yeah, yeah. and then I, I do a mind experiment thing. It's like, okay, if you were sitting in John's church and John's preaching from his own gospel, he comes to the bread of life discourse and he says, this has to do with the Eucharist. How can you verify that he got it right? And then I, I take that and then we go one generation later. Now you're in Ignatius of Antioch's yes, yes. Uh, church, who was a disciple of John. So, you, you know, he was taught by John. He was made a bishop, probably with John's acknowledgement. Uh, he does the same thing. Can you still verify 
that what that preacher Ignatius is saying is what was the original meaning, you know. And through that thought experiment, you see, yeah, there's multiple ways you could verify this very easily. And then you just take it generation after generation. And, uh, you know, you could take it all the way to, um, oh, you know, I usually stop at the end of the second century with the uh, Irenaeus of Lyon, who was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John, right? And uh, with Irenaeus, he, he almost outlines you know, yeah. hey, if you want to know what the original teaching was, check all the churches, right? And they, uh, you know, basically it gives the canon of St. Vincent of Lorraine. That was taught from antiquity, from the beginning, ubiquity everywhere, and consensus by all or nearly all people. So these check these churches out. And people did do that in the early church. There were people like Jesipus who traveled all over the place verifying to make sure that, you know, one church somewhere is teaching the same thing as a church in uh, another place. Because that, that's where you have multiple attestations all coalescing into a unity. So that means there must have been a point of origin that was earlier than these sources from which these sources came. And uh, it, when you have that, you have verification. So it actually, you know, now this is one of those things that was shocking to me. The more I thought about it, more I realized, actually, the longer you go in history, the easier it is to spot um, fabrications and alter alterations. Not harder. It actually gets easier because you have more and more data, right? right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so it's, you know, so the fathers of the third, fourth, fifth century, they have something to tell us. You know, there's evidence there for the original deposit of faith. Yeah. And so if you see a, a fabrication pop up, you'll kind of see, based on when it pops up, well, nothing else backs this thing up here, right? So obviously right. this is a fabrication. It, it gets, yeah, I see what you say. It gets easier and easier as you have more data that's building and building and building. And again, I love this here because this is a uniquely kind of Catholic take on this. This, is, this lends the weight of the Catholic Church to this kind of apologetic argument because, of course, like you say, and I think this is really important to underscore Passing on the, the text, the gospel message, those gospels that were orally passed on, then written down, passing on the, the meaning of those teachings is as important as passing on just the content of those teachings, right? And, yeah. and the loss in Protestantism is that there's this kind of distinct break in the Reformation from the historical meaning of a lot of those teachings— a lot, the, the text continues to be passed on. Now, of course, truncated, we would argue, because Catholic Bibles remain, remain bigger than the <laughs> Protestant Bible after the Reformation. But the, the, historic, the historic meaning of those teachings that were, that were always historically passed on in tandem with the actual biblical text, that, mm -hmm. is, that is lost for the most part in most, uh, in most of the Reformed, uh, you know, the, most of the Protestant traditions, right? And I think that is a huge, a huge shift if the meaning was always passed on with the text, as I think you're demonstrating, to lose yeah. that meaning, to, to separate those two things. Well, then, of course, you're going to result in a number of different denominations and, and arguments amongst the reformers and splits amongst Protestant churches and struggles to find meaning and, and collapsing denominations in the face of societal changes and stuff, because mm. you've, 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 I'm sorry, I'm kind of soapboxing here, Gary, but you've no, split fine. the text from the meaning and those things always went together, right? Is that fair to say? Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And now here's the beautiful thing about it. Someone may say, well, I don't know if that methodology sound, what you just said about this meaning being passed on and so on. Well, you know what? It's the same basic methodology that we use to verify that our text of scripture is goes back to the original or the autograph. The same methodology, essentially. So if you say, well, I, I'm just going to follow the Bible. I don't need to verify meaning from the earliest Christians. No, you, because it's the same methodology. If, it's, if one's wrong, then both are wrong, you know. And that's why, uh, you know, as a Catholic, I think we can give a really robust and coherent defense, you know, with all the, the bells and whistles. Uh, again, if you just take that idea of a real physical historical community that persists throughout history seriously you know and uh yeah so it so that was something uh i i think is a little disarming because you like you said it's not like um you can deny one one thing and just run away with the other because if you deny the one you ultimately undermine the other and unfortunately i think that's really what's happened uh as society has gone on people see the problems you know and uh they look at all these different interpretations um when it, there's a book that was printed um i think in the early 1600s and the title is 250 interpretations of the words this is my body <laughs> So this guy actually cataloged all the different interpretations of those few words. And when you look at that, you wonder, you know, what's up with Christianity? This just seems like a mess yeah, or, yeah. you know, like a Rorschach test that you look at ink blotches and try to make out whatever it means to you. But it's like, no, if the church is real and historical, you know, there's this core meaning that's passed on. And, of course, there's a lot of room for individual you know, interpretation and so on, but the, but the, you know, those large streams of doctrine are, are rooted there. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that becomes important because those are big questions, right? Baptism, what does it do? You know, how do we do it? When can we do it? Right. The, the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, what is it? How do we do it? What, what, when do we do it? How often do we do it? These, these kinds of questions, right? How are we, how are we saved? Can we lose that? Is it, is it a once for all decision? Is it based on our relationship with, with God? How do, what is sin? Are there different kinds of sins? How do I receive forgiveness for sins? All these, these, these are, these are big questions, right? And of course, you could read your, your Bible that has been passed on to you and answer those questions, but you could also look to the tradition that's been passed along with the Bible and get the tradition, the, get, and get the interpretation of the meaning that's been passed on, you know, fr- from the early church down down through time, right? Yeah. And that, and that again, that that that's the thing. That's the you you want to be able to understand what the Bible means, and there is a way of doing that, of seeing that yeah. that meaning was passed on from you know from teacher to student to teacher to student that, down through time in a real tangible community and we see that quite clearly in the Catholic Church and the early church fathers passed on uh, down through time right? yeah yeah absolutely yeah so um, yeah and uh, and you get the whole package right you yeah. not only get the text but you also get the meaning of the text you get the practices that's been going on since the beginning you know the whole kit and kaboom it, when you join that original community, yeah, right, yeah. and you get a really robust defense of it as well. Yeah, and yeah, and like I said, you know, without it, 
you undermine the scriptures and and I do dabble a little bit with the canon in here. I couldn't resist. But it's true, though. It's like, how, which books belong in the Bible? Which ones don't? How do you know that there aren't some books in there that aren't inspired? How do you know that there are inspired books that aren't included? Um, that's, you know, that's kind of a $100,000 question yeah. for our separated brethren is the, the canon. And like you mentioned, the Old Testament canon, there's these seven books that Catholics and Orthodox have that, uh, Protestants generally don't, and they certainly don't consider it inspired scripture. Um, how do you adjudicate that problem and who determines it? You know, um, and again, it just comes down to the same methodology as how do you know our text is identical to the original? How do you know what the meaning is? It's that the canon ties into that same kind of methodology. Yeah, yeah, and you you hit the problem as a Protestant of the church versus canon. How can you have one without the other kind of thing too, right? How can you have a canon yeah. without someone to tell me what the canon what the canon is? So, what do you? I mean, I'm curious your your treatment of the canon in this context. I mean, the, I mean the the book is how can we know what what Christ taught, right? How can we know the the truth of the gospel? I mean, we wouldn't know what gospels to read apart from somebody adjudicating what gospels because there are, are all kinds of gospels out there right that, that the church and historians now can show yeah this is a fabrication this is a fabrication you know we, we can see that in hindsight and understand that uh, you know as the, the the text of the gospels of the new testament was being put together the church left some out brought some in i mean that that process like that's that's pretty important to knowing who christ was right because we could if we don't have the right gospels in there, our picture of Christ completely changes. So I guess, oh, yeah. I, I mean, there's an aspect of, I think, faith in, in there. There has to be faith that you have the right Gospels. But I guess the question for me then is, well, I'm putting my faith in what exactly? Especially if I'm a Protestant, I'm putting my faith in, in the Catholic Church that they got that right? That makes me a little bit nervous <laughs> if I were a Protestant to go down that rabbit hole wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Or which epistles, and especially the Catholic epistles, um, you know, they're, usually what you'll hear is, well, if we could tie it to the apostle, then it's, it's part of the New Testament. But there, there are some books in the New Testament that the authorship was doubted, like Epistle of Hebrews, for example. Um, also, uh, you know, some of the Catholic epistles. And remember, you know, Go back to Martin Luther. He himself had doubts yeah, 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 yeah. as far as uh, James and Jude, Revelation, um, second. Well, I'm, uh, I can't remember. It was, I think, five old New Testament books that he actually didn't number in his first uh, edition of the German translation. They were segregated from the uh, the rest of the New Testament, and uh, you know that he's famously therefore doubting. But if you think about it. Um, well, how do we know that these writings are scripture? Uh, ultimately, it's because the community that was there at the beginning understood that there was legitimate apostolic ties. And so it became part of that, what we called it, the positive faith. It's like a, a treasure that is, you know, buried, if you will, but buried in public <laughs> or publicly used that people can access. Um you know, it's part of that. So even our inability to verify things, uh, you know, the, the witness of the early church makes up for whatever yeah, doubts yeah. there could be. That's if you take it seriously. And I, and unfortunately, 
for non-Catholics, they kind of have to steal a little bit of that and then deny it. You know, right. well, we go yeah. by the Bible alone, but uh, there's some things the early church that we can trust, you know. Yeah. But yeah. at that point, it's kind of like what determines what you can and you can't trust. If they could get it right on which books are in the New Testament, why can't they get it right on what the New Testament says and teaches, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. That is always the problem. And again, that's the problem that I mean, I certainly encountered myself looking into the early church, trying to trying to square my faith as evangelical with the early church, right? There are bits you can affirm and appreciate and take in. I mean, the, the, like you say, the, the canon itself is something that you need to really rely on the early church to say, yeah, they got it right. Th- those communities were reading the right books and, and passing them on. And ultimately, those guys called bishops, again, an awkward word for a non-Catholic to use, you know, affirmed that councils th- these books were, were fit for the canon. That becomes a bit of a sticky situation if you are, don't believe that the other things the bishops at those councils affirmed also were important, right? I can remember reading some right. of the texts of the early councils that were, that were affirming, or the, early, or the church fathers who were saying, here's my, here's my canon that's, that's widely read. You look at what else those councils were doing, those fathers were, were affirming, you get into some weird territory. And yeah. you're, you're in a place of like, how can I take this one thing from the early church, but I can't take these other things they also teach, right? I mean, this, the, you know, yeah. for, I, for example, for me, it would be the, the, the same church that was baptizing infants and saying that baptism actually saves was giving me the New Testament canon, the, the biblical canon. Well, how could I throw the baby out with the bathwater? <laughs> That's a good, right. that's a good one, but take the but take the Bible, <laughs> right? I couldn't, you can't, I I couldn't, you can't pick and choose like that from the very primitive church, right? How could they yeah. so early get this thing wrong, but this thing right? And I'll take this, Gary, but I don't want that. Like that becomes yeah, even even Protestants that do take history seriously, and they'll say, well, the New Testament, we could appeal to the North African councils of Carthage and Hippo, right? They affirmed the New Testament, and that's good enough. The fourth century, the church came to consensus. But just like you say, but they don't go to the Old Testament that also affirms the the seven deuterocanonical books that they reject. So yeah. it's like, so we'll we'll accept everything within this little square yeah. here, yeah, and we'll yeah. just ignore all the other stuff. Yeah. So even on the canon, they'll take part of the canon, but not the other yeah. like that. That's really <laughs> to be an extreme, <laughs> an extreme view, right? They got this part right, and this other part here. That's like in the next paragraph, they they got right. that part. They got that part wrong, right? And yeah. of course, we talked on the show, uh, you know, years ago now, Gary. But on that on that problem of right, mm-hmm. so if you exclude these certain things from your from the the text that you see as sacred and guiding your framework for how you do your faith, if you exclude these books, well, the faith you're doing won't contain the things that those books talk about, like prayers for the dead, those kind of things yeah. that we as Catholics, you know, affirm and do because the scriptures we have <laughs> have those things yeah. in. And those right. were part of the faith that was passed down, you know, from, from the apostles. But of course, if that's not part of your scripture, you, you aren't doing that. And if your scripture is formed from, or sorry, if your faith is formed from, from scripture, well, what's in that scripture becomes really important to get right, Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, and, uh, you know, it's, it's even worse. Uh, it's when Protestants read their new Testament, they're reading it against a, 
uh, Old Testament backdrop that didn't exist for like three, four hundred years earlier. Right. Right. Yeah. They're, they're missing this whole period of yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like even the Judaism, when you move from the old to the new, it's 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 a huge jump for Protestants. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And for non-Catholics, uh, because the Jews also don't accept these books. And let me give you uh, an example. I got an email from uh, a Jewish person in England. And he's saying, you know, what's all this stuff with the Trinity? The Trinity is pagan. It's obviously pagan. Jews would never believe anything like the Trinity. And I pointed out to him that, you know, there's this whole period of development that's not in your Tanakh, you know, not within what what we call the Protestant canon. But within that deuterocanonical period, there's a development of Jewish thought where, you know, God's wisdom becomes personified. And uh, God's wisdom is like co-eternal with God. It's it's uh, part of God, and yet it's distinct from God. And then there's the spirit of God that also becomes personified. And, and you know, the logos understanding, all of this stuff happens within this small period of time. So if you don't have those, yeah. those books, it seems like tr- teachings like the, the Trinity – it's like paganism that these Christians, Jewish Christians just grabbed onto. But, you know, if you look at that lost history, you see, no, this is authentic Judaism. You know, they believe, they were coming really close to something that approaches John 1, 1 through 4, right? Um, but uh, it doesn't happen until the word actually does become flesh that, uh, you know, we can speak more explicitly about it. But without those books, it's like it just seems to pop out of nowhere. Uh, yeah, it reminds me of the church history class that I took in adult Sunday school in a Pentecostal church, right? And on the board is the Old Testament, this big period of darkness and then yeah, the New right. Testament, right? And little do we know, no, actually, th- that that was self-imposed by Protestant reformers who, were, you know, who decided these books did not belong in the Bible and, and took them out. And now we don't know what happened in there because those, right? And of course, yeah. fascinating things like, like you say, and like the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, Dr. John Bergsma, guest on this mm-hmm. show a number of times, who has written a fantastic book on Dead Sea Scrolls and, how, and what that illuminates for us in terms of what, what the Jews were believing and practicing at the time of Christ, you know, just before, and how, gosh, there were communities that looked very much like the very first Christian communities doing things that looked very much like the very first Christian communities just before you know Christ came, but of course that stuff is is missing from large parts of the Old Testament. Those books were right were, were removed, so of course the the table for the banquet is not quite set in the way that you know we as Catholics would argue, you know, the, the the Church in her wisdom argues should be set with those books belonging in the canon of Scripture, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it's just uh, when it gets to the New Testament, they they assume a lot, yeah. right? Because it's like this is part of the air that they breathe, and they're connecting the dots and so on and so forth. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that's wonderful. So, to the, so the person who wants to d- defend uh, Christianity, the Gospels, Christ as a, as a real person, as these things as real, true, true events, you know, I, I guess my question for you would be, what would be the number one kind of you know, tip. Okay, number one tip is read read your book. Go go and get it and buy it from the cover <laughs> to cover. <laughs> In addition to that, number number two tip then, Gary, after they get the book and read it cover to cover, would you say would be a way that people could uh, could begin to show that yes, this was a real thing. We can really know and trust that what Christ said was was this in the gospels. 
what would you say to somebody who wants to 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 defend that and to to speak about that to somebody? Yeah, who's... right. Yeah. Well, first, I think you need to be able to have a uh, a good reason why we should even be concerned about this Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. Unfortunately, most people today, the only time they hear the name Jesus is when somebody swears. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's how I begin my book. It's like there's something strange that went on in the first century about this Jesus of Nazareth guy. And so what do we know about him that's that's solid? And uh, I think that's the first thing. You need to whet their appetite and say, you know, that there's this Jewish rabbi in the first century that um, was prophesied beforehand, which is weird, right? And then, then there's this explosion of Christianity that radically reorders society and raises it up to new heights, you know, from this, te- this uneducated teacher, yeah, right? A yeah, son of yeah. a carpenter. Um, that should make the average person say, ah, that's weird. You know, <laughs> maybe I should look a little bit more seriously in the Jesus. I, I think that's the first step that we often forget. Yeah. Then the second one is like, okay, well, let's drill down and see, you know, is this authentic? Let's ask some hard questions. Like, could this be a fabrication? Could it be a legend, fraud, embellishments, you know, and they use my book to kind of point out, no, there's no way that could possibly be true. And then, uh, you know, and just tell them the rest of the story, you know, that there's this community that persists. And that's how we know, you know, we could verify all these things, even thousands of years later, even with a lot of the evidence gone, you could still verify things. Um, And, uh, you know, and while you're doing that, uh, take them to mass or take them to Eucharistic adoration. Give them radiation treatment. That's yeah. why I call it, you know, <laughs> because you can't be in the presence of Christ and not yeah. be changed, yeah. you know. Uh, so I show them that, yeah, this is part of that community, that 2000 year old community. And uh, and let God work on their hearts. But uh, but I think we kind of have to start the conversation like, yeah. you know what, there's this guy that totally reordered the world and now. Most people only know him when they swear or something yeah, like that. Yeah. It's like, who is this guy? <laughs> that's that's brilliant, Gary. I I love that because, of course, you know, for one thing, you're absolutely right. There, there were there were times when we could assume people might know who Jesus is and be, be curious and have some kind of connection to him. I can think of the other day I was you know at, at work. And somebody mentioned something, and I and I said a comment, and they said, "Well, how do you know that?" And I said, "Oh, well, you no, know, didn't you read this?" And they go, well, what do you mean? What's what's that? And it was a you know a, a book or a, a course that I thought everyone would of course know about because I'm not that old. But but <laughs> they had no idea that it, would, it was even a thing. And I thought, wow, like you know these things that at one point we could kind of assume about society are have shifted very far and very quickly. Right? You have a whole book about the, about the, the revolt yeah. against reality, right, Gary? But. You know, we have to. We can't assume people are even curious about Jesus anymore. So we got we to start with with peaking in their interest, with it introducing sometimes, right? Who Jesus yeah. is? Gosh, Gary, I, I still hear people talking about the idea that, right? If somebody isn't evangelized, they you know they have they have perfect innocence, right? They have invincible invincible ignorance about who who Jesus is, and you know they they if you never heard the gospel, you can't be condemned to hell or something, right? Because you have not heard. Right. And I think more and more these days, I think we really have to not become universalists, all of us, but but widen that net of people who've actually not heard the gospel. 
Like yeah. we, we, I think we still assume that that people have, and really, I think that assumption is becoming more and more thin. Like, do people really know who Jesus is? So, I think starting there, Gary, I think is a, yeah. And then I love that you you connect that to the community. Like, hey, here's this, you know, here are these miracles, these these stories. We can verify these from from the sources. But look, we still exist today. We're still doing this. This this mass is the same mass that you can find written about in these ancient sources. The the Didache, you know, Justin yeah. Martyr in 180. Like the the we still do the same thing here. Come, you know, come join us. Come come check this out. Right. And again, yeah. of course, if if God is who He says He is, you know, you walk into adoration, you you'll sense a sense of peace, whether you're you're Catholic or not. There's there's something going on here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I yeah. I, the persistence <laughs> that, of the Jerry. church. That's like, what if I could show you a miracle that can be, that everybody would recognize, no one would doubt. And it's just obvious that it's occurring and it's continued to occur for yeah. 2000 years. Yeah. And the answer is the church, right? It's still here against all odds, against everything. Uh, you know, uh, emperors have come and gone. Empires have uh, come and, and perished and been forgotten. And yet the Catholic church is still alive and well, yeah. you know, it's spreading throughout the world. Uh, it's like a miracle in plain sight. And, uh, and that, I think, yeah, that's a really, I like the way you put that because it's like, it's a natural tie to the gospel. It's like, how can this happen? Well, you know what? The gospels seem to give a plausible explanation, yeah. you know, because it's Christ's body, the church. Oh, that's awesome. I'm going to call that the Gary Machuda method now. I'm going to, we can trademark that and, and start and get a course going for that, Gary. I, I love that. That's a great way of leading people towards the, you know, the, the Roman road that the evangelicals used uh, in, in the 90s. We'll use the, I don't know, the, the Machuda. We got, we, got to, we got to work on this. Okay. There's got to be a catchy way of doing that. But yeah, that's, right. that's, a, yeah. that's a great, I love that. That's genuine. That's beautiful. That's wonderful, Gary. I, this is a fantastic book. Kudos again for, for your work on this. It's, it's awesome. And yeah, thank you. everything you do, you know, spend the night, get back to work, Gary. Get hunkered back down there in the studio <laughs> and get working on the next book because we'll see you in four years because uh, <laughs> we're really in debt to you and the work like this. This is awesome stuff, Gary. Uh, where do you want to point people towards uh, where they can find this, uh, buy this book? I'll put links in the show notes too to all this stuff. Listen okay. listen to you. They can get a lot of Machuda if they want to, Gary. Where do you want to point them towards? Yeah, you can just uh, you know go to uh, Emmaus Road Press or St. Paul Center, St. Paul Center. I think it's dot. Yeah, well, I should know this com or org. Yeah, before we went on, I, uh, this is like the second interview on my book. So <laughs> I, I should know where they could get the book, but you could always Google it or whatever and, and they'll come yeah. up. Yeah, that's fantastic. And they can find your your radio show, Gary. Don't don't sell yourself short here. Hands on apologetics. Fantastic radio show. Uh, available on podcasts. I listen to it all the time. Uh, awesome. One of, as you say, the twenty listeners who you think listen. There, are, there are many, <laughs> many more than that. But uh, great. So now there's nineteen yeah, besides <laughs> you. Okay, well, that's even less intimidating. Oh, I'll put links to that in the show notes as as well, Gary. And I should say this awesome. is this is interview number two on this book, Gary, because. Before I even got an email that this book was being released, I caught wind of it and I emailed you to to get on the the train because I know the stuff you do is fantastic and I want to get you on the show as soon as possible. So I got an early because I was I'm an early adopter of the 
the game with Peter yeah. merchandise. So I got to say, I appreciate it, Gary. It's always a good time. Uh, God bless you, uh, the work you are doing for the church. Don't stop, please. We love it, Gary. Thanks for being here. And, uh, and take care. All right. Well, thank you. You made my day. <laughs> you made mine. So we're both, both uh, yeah, doing good. As always, a pleasure to have Gary Machuda on the show. What a fantastic guy. Always fun to chat with him. We, we chatted for about half an hour after we finished recording on some of the deep dives that we've done in different uh, areas of uh, early church history and uh, and biblical studies and these kind of things. So uh, a fellow nerd amongst a company of nerds. It's always fun to talk, talk to Gary. Let me know what you think of this show, cordialcatholic at gmail.com for your feedback. We're on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at cordialcatholic, on Facebook at thecordialcatholic. Thecordialcatholic.com is our website for show notes and for my blog and things that we are up to. And you can watch what you are hearing at youtube.com slash thecordialcatholic. If you listen on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, just stopping leaving a rating or review will help push the podcast out to new people. When you search for new shows, people do this. They look at new shows and they always look at those ratings and reviews to see if other people are, are listening to and, and enjoying the show. I had someone recently say, yeah, they found the show through you know, looking for a show for, for new Catholics, for Catholic converts, saw the ratings, the reviews, and thought, yeah, this is a show that people are, are listening to and enjoying. Saw our huge backcast catalog and thought, okay, I'm digging in. So thank you guys for your ratings and reviews. And for the for you guys, the new listeners, thanks for finding us. If you want to support the show financially, those links to PayPal and to uh, Patreon are in the show notes. Please find those and consider supporting the show financially. And please do pray for us as well. Know that I'm praying for you too. Please pray for me. Thanks for listening, guys, and talk to you again soon. Take care, God bless, and <laughs> thanks for listening. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy. A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.